The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Um, I have in, in the packet in front of you, uh, there is obviously the, the worksheet that we go through. There is the packet of verses in combination with some of our bylaws. And then in the very back, on the last page, there is a bibliography of every source that I have consulted, taken from, you know, put in here in these packets throughout this time. Um, the one that is in bold is Understanding the Congregation's Authority, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. That is a free book that we have put on the resource table out there. So it's tiny. I mean, it, it's 50 pages. And it's, and, the, and it's, you know, that big maybe. And so it ta- it'll probably take you, I think, the, maybe, I read very slowly. And it takes me maybe an hour to get through the whole thing. So uh, I, you can read through it really pretty quickly. And this worksheet comes largely out of that. So just know that, and I, and I think it will benefit you if you want to keep pick up a copy, because there's tons of things in it that I'm not going over tonight. I'm just going over the bare bones. So, um, so just keep that in mind. Grab that. Uh, just use it as a resource. I think it would be very helpful for you. Um, over the last few weeks, we have done, uh, at the very beginning, we, we kind of went through the biblical argument for elders, of like where the Bible is actually talking about these things. And I said in the New Testament, obviously churches are not just governed by a singular person. They're not, they're not uh, even led by a singular person called the pastor. They are led by a group of men who are referred to as pastors, elders, overseers. And their responsibilities are to lead the church in discipline, uh, planning and executing direction of the church, uh, distinguishing themselves, and preserving the sound doctrine and the teaching of sound doctrine. Um, and, and, and so this, you see this is common in the New Testament. If you read through the New Testament at all, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Is He's setting up elders in every church. Not an elder in each church, but elders in every church. And that was always how the church was structured. Before then, we saw back in Israel, in Old Testament times, elders arose uh, really out of necessity as they became the oldest members of the tribes. They became the heads of families. And so when, um, you know, members of families had disputes, they would go to the Grandpa Moses or whoever it was, you know, and, and ask for counsel and help, and they would make decisions within their family. But then they took on bigger roles for the nation as a whole, because really Israel was a massive group of families. That's essentially what I, I suppose any any group is, is a massive group of families, but especially Israel. They all traced their lineage to the same fathers, and so it, it became really important that the older members of the community began to speak. That took on a much greater role as it went on, as David is king, and Saul is king, and so on and so forth. All the kings come about, the elders become a governing body that are, are now leading the nation as a whole. And then on through the beginnings of sort of the circumstances around the New Testament as the synagogues begin to develop in each city, sort of like churches, as it were, um, the elders began to be a a governing body there, a body of of leaders inside those synagogues teaching the word, uh, shepherding the word, shepherding the people. 
Um, so then, uh, on through past the New Testament into the the second century, third century, we see a plurality of elders begin to be really emphasized. Perhaps too much. We talked about that. Yes, and that ultimately led to a lot of different ways in which people see churches and their function of churches. But the point is that elders were preserved inside the local body. And, uh, and, and in particular, one began to be called out as sort of, sometimes he's referred to as the president uh, in, in, uh, in some of the early church documents. He'd be the one that is presiding over the, the, uh, the assembly, so he would be referred to as the president. He is presiding but it, we would call him the, the head pastor, the one that's teaching and, you know, and doing the main share of the teaching. But all the elders shared in that responsibility equally um, amongst each other in teaching and, and bringing people up. The last two weeks, we have talked about the rest, restoring the role of elders inside our church. So we've kind of now shifted from, here's the biblical argument, to the last now three weeks going to, how did, what does that look like in our bylaws? And so the first week, we saw uh, how we would restore elders in the life of the church and what that means to actually restore elders in the life of the church and their role. Last week, we looked at restoring the role of the deacons inside the church and what their role is and how you relate to them. And finally, tonight, is restoring the role of the congregation. So, um, I... I, I thought about a million different ways to begin here, but uh, and probably could do a different, different beginning. But I, wa- I want to say this: um, sometimes, when people present a plurality of elders, what is maybe unintentionally or maybe intentionally communicated is, "All right, you've had your say long enough. Now let's shift it over to elders and let them rule for a while." And what is often thought in the mind of the congregation is there are two choices of church government. You have either congregational rule or you have elder rule, and you got to pick one. And what I'm presenting is an option that I, I am convinced by Scripture is true, which is elders leading the church and the congregation having the final authority and ruling. Now, what does that look like? Well, it's a delicate balance. I'm going to be honest with you. It is a very delicate balance because we've got to keep some things in tension. But I want you to remember this. We are not congregationalists because we're Baptists. We don't believe in congregational rule because we're Baptists. We believe in congregational rule because it's biblical. We're Baptists we should be, because we're convinced in Scripture that's the way it should be practiced in the church, okay? Now, to be Baptist is a whole bunch of things, and we're not going to talk about all of those tonight, including baptism, which is where the name comes from. What we are talking about tonight is the congregational aspect, the role the congregation plays in the life of the church. So, if anybody were to say, well, we're going to a plurality of elders, that means the elders are going to rule, you'll have to say, ah, that's not what's happening. No, no, no. It's elder leadership, congregational rule. Now, by the time we get to the end of this packet tonight, you may regret wanting congregational rule. <laughs> maybe. I don't think so, but maybe. Uh, 
the point is we have to first back up and just very briefly understand where that idea of congregationalism even comes from and where we see it play out in the Bible. And so I'm going to do that really briefly because I've done this several times. So this, some of this may be a little bit of a rehash for you, but then I want to show where our bylaws reflect a lot of that and why, why our bylaws say what they say. First, I want to start with Matthew 16 and 18. In Matthew 16 and 18, these are the only places that Jesus uses the word church. So, that probably means as we're discussing congregationalism or what we are as a church body, I don't know, maybe it's important, right? And maybe we should pay a little closer attention to it than we normally do. There's two passages in particular. You're probably pretty familiar with these passages. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to talk about them, all right? So um, let's first look at Matthew 16, 13 to 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now Matthew eighteen fifteen to 20. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. All right. So, starting with chapter 16 and in verse 13. Jesus asks his disciples two questions. First is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then in 15, he says, who do you say that I am? And what he's asking is, what is a right confession about me? Obviously, he, Peter gets that. He gets the right answer. So he's asking, what is, what is the right way to understand who I am? Society around is guessing John the Baptist reincarnate or you know, one of the you know, prophets that came before, Jeremiah, somebody like that, somebody really important, but then Peter gets the answer right. So Jesus is asking, what's the right confession about me? And who of you here knows it? What is it? Peter is the spokesperson of the group, it seems. He's always the one to speak up. Or maybe he's just a loudmouth. I don't know. But he brings me a lot of comfort. So 
I, I feel like me and Peter would probably get along, though neither one of us would get a word in edgewise. All right. So, <laughs> following Peter's confession in verse 16, Jesus first promises that he's going to build his church on this rock. And if you throw this passage out there, uh, just in the broad church landscape, and I, I'm using church very generally, all right, very generously, all right, let's just throw it out there in the broad church landscape. You're going to have Catholics answering this question one way, what this rock he's building his church on. They're going to say, Peter, that's why the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, has the say on all matters is because he's a theological descendant from Peter, is what they say. And Peter being the first Pope, they say, of the Church of Rome. So uh, you throw it out there to a number of other people, and they're going to say a whole bunch of other things. Well, what, they're, what he's building the uh, church on is the confession that Peter has just made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, I, I would give a, a, maybe a, just a qualification to that. I, I think that's largely right, but I do think there is some sense of combination of those two things. First of all, I think it is this confessor, Peter, confessing the right confession. All right, so him saying that, and second, um, the Holy Spirit, or God himself, revealing that to the confessor, making the confession. All right? And we're going to see that part in just a second, but putting 16 and 18 together. So in order to build this church, Jesus is giving to Peter, who represents, who is the kind of head representative of the apostles, the chief speaker, if you will, of the apostles, the keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing. All right? So, fair enough. Let's look at Matthew 18, though. Because this, I, don't, I think the two have to be complete together. In Matthew 18, we see that Jesus also gives the keys to a local church. So, he says uh, in 18, um, in, uh, in verse 17, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The change that takes place here is that Jesus is not talking to Peter like he was in 16. He's now saying you in the plural. This is why I'm advocating for a Texan translation of the Bible, because it would make some of these so much clearer. Truly I say to y'all, whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever y'all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right? So he's turning this over to a plural y'all. His intention is very obvious in 16, not specific to Peter. But it is broader than just Peter. This is the reason why, when you get to chapter 18, the same verbiage that he says to Peter, he applies to a broader group of y'all. A group of you, right? 
So what that tells me is, it's not strictly Peter that is receiving the keys to the kingdom. It's not even strictly about the right confession. It is about the right confession produced from God the Father opening the eyes of the confessor with these apostles who are his twelve being forerunners or leaders or the first church planters. In other words, they are to take this right confession that God has opened their eyes to see and share that broadly. And as God opens the eyes of people they share it with, they also become a part of this group that he refers to as the church that now have the keys to the kingdom so that they might bind and loose. Tracking so far? Okay. So, uh, the question obviously is, well, what does it mean to bind and loose? That sounds, sounds pretty strict. It is. So this scenario, if you trace what Jesus is saying in chapter 18, it follows three rounds of evaluation and judgment over a person's sin. First, there is an individual who goes to confront another individual in his or her sin. They evaluate the sin, and they render or pronounce a judgment. That is sin, and you need to repent over that sin. This is just, this is just mano y mano, okay? One on one. Then, if they don't listen to that, they refuse to repent, I didn't do anything wrong, the person who has evaluated that brings two or three others. Because the person who, go, who went and said, hey, that's sinful, they might be in the wrong. Right? So you need a couple others. So these couple others come, and on the basis of two or three witnesses, they also join in this evaluation process, and they speak to the person and confront the person in sin. If they still don't listen to the two or three, maybe the two or three are wrong. So they tell it to the whole church. The whole church then turns to render a judgment on this person and pronounce the judgment on them and encourage them to repent from sin. And if they don't listen even to the church, then let this person be to y'all as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, the church as a whole now has to render a verdict. If you want to see that whole scene play out in an abbreviated fashion, 1 Corinthians 5 is a good place to watch that happen. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, remember Paul says a man has his father's wife. His stepmom, probably, is in some sort of relationship or affair with his stepmother. And Paul says, look, they've, they've gone through tolerance of sin. They've gone through a lot of this. Everybody's kind of recognizing this as sin. Paul says, when I, when you, next time you're gathered, as if I'm there in spirit, I want you to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You're watching the binding and loosing right there, in, or in this case, the binding. You're, you're witnessing the binding right there in the church when they kick that person out of church membership. All right? So do you notice, though, that neither Paul in 1 Corinthians nor Jesus in Matthew ends the evaluation and judgment process with the church leaders. You notice that? He goes all the way to the church. 
Now, in the Old Testament, you could just, if me and Becky witnessed the sin of somebody, we could go, and we're two witnesses. That's enough to stone this person to death, right? Old Testament Jewish law. That's not what Jesus is advocating for in the church. He's not advocating for stoning, first of all. That's one thing. But what, he's, what he is advocating for is not just the two witnesses, but those two witnesses become key to determining the verdict of this and presenting it to the church body as a whole. The church body as a whole then makes a decision. They are responsible to make a decision on whether or not this person is inside the body of Christ or outside the body of Christ. Now, you can't see the person's heart. You don't know what's going on in there. What you're looking at and evaluating is the fruit that is being produced. And the fruit that's chiefly being produced here is unrepentant sin. When a person demonstrates ongoing unrepentant sin, what it says is, likely, there's no spirit inside to lead them to repentance. At least that's the best judgment we can make, right? So you are called to do that. All right, so then in verse 18 here, he affirms again the binding and loosing that he gave to Peter earlier on. However, this time he uses you in the plural, y'all. The point is, he is giving the keys of the kingdom to the gathered church. In other words, the gathered church has the authority to remove someone from membership, that's verse 17, because it possesses the keys of binding and loosing, that's verse 18. So this means, here we go, you ready for this one? Hope you're ready, I don't think you're ready. This means that the church can exercise the same authority that Jesus exercised with Peter or that the local church exercises in chapter 18 to stand in front of a gospel confessor and after analysis announce an official judgment on heaven's behalf. Exercising the keys is rendering judgment on a confession and a confessor. What are you rendering the judgment on? Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. What you are making a judgment on is whether or not this person that is confessing, that is standing in front of you, has had their eyes opened by your Father in heaven. It's the confessor confessing the confession based on the Spirit of God opening their eyes. In the event that you're kicking someone out of church membership, removing membership from them. What you're saying is, by everything we can tell, there seems to be no revelation from God in you. That's our best assessment. So what does that mean? How do you do that? How do you have the gumption, the gall, to stand in front of somebody and say as a Christian, I don't think you are a Christian. Well, there has to be a lot of patience. A lot of patience. How many of you were lost at some point? How many of you, having been saved, then subsequently got lost again? Not lost in the eternal sense, but you lost your way. You know, you wandered through the woods. All right, a time or two. Me too. How many of you had somebody around you that was incredibly patient with you in your wanderingness? 
That's probably all of us. So when we go to make that pronouncement on somebody, it takes a lot of care. It takes a lot of evidence. It takes a lot of patience. I don't think what Jesus is saying here is, hey, go to them once, go to them twice, and then tell it to the church and see you later. I think what he's saying is exactly the opposite of that. Don't just, when someone sins against you, be done with them. Because he tells Peter that. Peter's like, well, how many times I got to forgive this guy? Right? Up to seven whole times you have to forgive this person? And Jesus says, 70 times seven, meaning just stop counting. If a person comes back to you and repents, you forgive them. You've, you've gained your brother. And they turn around, they do it again, and they come back and repent, you've gained your brother. And they do it again, they turn around and they repent, you've gained your brother. I mean, you're, at some point you're like, how many times do I have to do this? And you're right there with Peter. And so Jesus is actually emphasizing an immense amount of patience rather than what it would be eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you know, get rid of them instantly. No, no, no. Be very patient. Lots of analysis. Lots of grace. And for us, I know we've gone through this. We've gone through this in your notice one big time for sure. A couple of times it's gotten close. We've gone, taken more people, probably without most of your notice, to others and, and, and confronted them and things like that. And interpersonally, one person to another, it's probably happened millions of times, right? In, in this church, especially in this church's history. It's probably happened so many times, more than you would even know, or, or we could even count. And, and what has been true each time is that we want to take an immense amount of patience. It's heartbreaking to actually do this. It's not something we love doing. But what Jesus is saying here is it is the responsibility of the church to do it. So when we talk about congregational rule, I'm great with that. I want everybody to know what congregational rule is. And I want everybody, I don't want to hide from that, I ain't trying to take that rule on my own shoulders. Not for a billion dollars would I do that. Take it on my own shoulders. Don't want to. All right? I don't even want to lead a church by myself in that. Right? That is intimidating to me because I'm, I've only got this much foresight. All right? Okay? So I don't want to do that. I want the whole church on board. But if you think congregational rule is the same thing as majority rule... Well, the Bible doesn't support that at all, right? And congregational rule certainly isn't. The ability to buy 51% of the vote change the air conditioner temperature, all right? That's, I'm going to keep hounding on you, Shannon. Uh, that's certainly, Jesus doesn't say, <laughs> Jesus doesn't say to Peter, I give you the keys to the air conditioner box, all right? And whatever you temperature you want to set it to, you do it. It doesn't tell him that. This is much bigger than that. Congregational rule isn't really about those things. It's about something much, much greater than that. So as we think about congregational rule, I wouldn't just throw that card out there too lightly. Because... It's a rule. It is an authority of the congregation, yes. But it's also a responsibility of the congregation. 
So there's something that is on your shoulders. So when we talk about member meetings, the reason that I think you should come to member meetings is not so that you can determine how many staples are, are bought in the church. I mean, that's fine. We're going to pass budgets, all right? And con the congregation's going to weigh in on that. Absolutely, I, I get that. But if that's all member meeting is, is money business, I would argue that's not even barely a percentage of what the church should be doing in its member meetings. In some sense, they're similar to church services. They're building up. They are edifying. They are hearing reports of what's going on in the church, what things are really going on. Stuff that you probably wouldn't tell the general public on Sunday morning. This person has come to us wanting to come to Christ and they're being discipled. This person is struggling in this kind of sin. We really need to pray for them and we need to come around them. This person is wandering off into whatever. It's a lot of those things that we as members have the responsibility to know. And further, when you come to join the church, you are, by signing off on the church covenant, giving up your right to autonomy. You understand that? Now that's a... For, uh, that's a big deal. You're inviting a whole group of people that some of which you may barely know to details of your life. Intimate details, things that you struggle with, things that you're going through. You are inviting a church body into that and what Jesus is saying, what God has said, is that it takes a church to raise a Christian. You understand? All right. Okay. So, for this reason, the bylaws communicate clearly that members have not only the right but the responsibility to attend member meetings and express their voice through vote, through motions, through discussion. So let's look at one of the bylaws here. And we'll see what has been added. The bold means that it has been added. This is the proposal, in other words. The strike-through means that it has been taken out of the old bylaws, okay? Um, active members in 1C1, bylaws 1C1 under Matthew 18.20. Active members shall have the right to a voice and responsibility to vote in all church transactions and shall have the right and privileges to full participation in the life and work of the church. Okay. So the congregation, since the church, along with its elders, is responsible for guarding the gospel, that comes from Galatians 1, 8 and 9, it bears the responsibility to uphold the articles of faith, the Constitution, and the bylaws. This happens both through excommunication, accepting uh, people, others into membership in the regular or specially called member meetings. So this is uh, something, and I forgot to include Galatians 1, 8, and 9 in there. But essentially what the church is called to do then through, it, through the excommunication process and through the bringing members into church membership, you, as a church body, are to guard 
the gospel as it's proclaimed. Okay, I want to unpack that just for a second because that's tremendously important for a host of reasons. But Paul tells the church at Galatia, if me or an angel comes to you preaching a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, not that there is another one, but if they came preaching to you something other than what we came preaching to you, kick them out. Paul's saying, if I bought into a lie, and I, who established the church at Galatia, came here and preached a different gospel, kick me out. So, the church body has a responsibility to guard the gospel itself. So what is preached up here, you have a responsibility to evaluate. Look at your text. Study it. Know it. Understand it. Understand what's being said. Understand how it's being applied. Understand all of those things. And you're responsible for guarding that in your church body. That's where the responsibility of church membership comes from. Okay? Now, that means when we read, when somebody comes to join the church, we read their confession, what they believe about the gospel. I have interviewed them. So hopefully if there was any big red flags, I would have stopped that early on. But you don't take that as just, that's, well, that's it. Michael interviewed him, and so it's, it's good with me. Let's rubber stamp everything. No, no, no. You're reading the confession too. Hey, I noticed something's interesting here. She didn't say this, or he didn't say that. And then I, maybe I'm able to fill in what, hey, they said that in my office. All right, so they did fill that, fill that part in. But you doing that is ensuring that the person that is coming into membership, I think that's a right confession. There again, has the Father opened their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Well, the confessor is confessing the right confession, it seems like. And maybe you've gotten a chance to know them, maybe you've gotten some discussion with them and things like that, and you can testify to their character and things that you've seen so far. And we're not being so strict that somebody has to be a scholar when they walk in the office, all right? That's not what I'm talking about. And sometimes people freeze up when they're in front of you and they say things, they, they step on themselves, oh, what, what was I saying? How can I get this in a tight 30 seconds? Not everybody's that, that good, but we give them opportunities to explain themselves and things like that, and they, that's necessary. But what does that produce? What does diligence in that matter produce? Where do you want to see this church in 200 years? We'll all be dead. Every single one of us, right? I don't know, unless there's some breakthrough in medical miracles, I don't know. But we're all going to be dead, all right? 200 years. But if you were to come back all of a sudden, and you were to look at this church... What would you want to see happening here? Would you want to see the gospel being preached still? Tr- truly? I would. Would you want to see the members edifying one another, holding each other accountable, but also building one another up? And would you want to see them singing right doctrine, praying right doctrine, listening to right doctrine? Would you want to see the teaching of the church throughout be doing this and, and continuing to do this? Would you want to see them ministering to the church, to the community around them and, and sharing the gospel broadly and, and doing ministry inside and, and whatever that meant? They would be doing all kinds of ministry? Okay, then what you do in member meetings guards that gospel and helps that be established in 200 years. It doesn't just happen. 
It doesn't just poof out of the sky, there's a good church. That doesn't happen. It takes you actually going through the diligence of reading the confessions and you look at it, it's like it's a mile long, and you're like, you know, get to it, get to the point, right? And I don't want to read all this. Oh, I don't want to sit in this. How long are we going to be at this member meeting? It's all oh, this is going to take. No, the only way the church is going to be there in 200 years is the Lord sustaining its members with the diligence that it takes to comb over and through everything. That's congregational authority. That's congregational rule. So again, before we play the congregational rule card, you better figure out, is this something that I want to be a part of? Because membership is not just like joining a gym. You're responsible to maintain this place. And I don't mean just keep up with the grounds and make sure the walls aren't leaking. Though we want to do that. I'm saying we've got to ensure that the doctrine that's being taught here is right and it's true. And we've got to do our homework to know what is, what, what is, has always been held as true. What has been believed everywhere, always, and by all Christians? What is that that's been there? And then, after that, what is, can be a, a varying degree of opinions? So, we're not going to get to the point where we go, well, the end times, you've got to believe this thing about that. You've got you to be a dispensationalist to be here if you're going to believe the end times. That's, that's never been the case, right? You've got to believe Jesus is coming back. That's always been the case. You've got to believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's always been the case, right? You don't have to be a Calvinist to be here. You don't have to be an Arminian to be here. You've got to believe God saves you got to believe I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. you got to believe in the Bible alone as the sole witness of who God is and the right testimony, its infallibility, and its inerrancy. Those things have always been believed. All right? So it's your responsibility to know those things and to understand those things. So the teaching we do here, or that I try to do, is not just so that you can impress your friends with vocabulary or whatever. It's not. It's so that you have the tools to guard the gospel. That's its purpose. It's to establish congregational rule and make it robust. Okay. So then members have the authority and responsibility to counsel and or confront members in open sin as they and, and, and as they continue in unrepentant behavior. So you have the responsibility to counsel and confront. How many of y'all like that? Nope. Especially not in the South. <laughs> in New York, might not be a problem. In the South, big problem. It's hard. But it's your responsibility. And you can see that's still preserved in our bylaws. I'm going to go through these a little faster, but it's okay. They're there. You can go read them. You can check me on it. All right. I, I put it down there. I show my work. Okay a good math, math student. Right, Bob, you got to show my work, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, members are also responsible for votes. Now, there's a whole bunch of them in, the, in where these are alluded to or stated or whatever. 
in the bylaws that are there, but votes to pass the budget. That uh, the elders are responsible in conjunction with the deacons of establishing what the right things should be. We'll run that also by a finance committee, especially for the time being, but, but likely for a long time in the future. Run that through a finance committee who will oversee all of those things and then run it finally to the church who will uh, affirm it by vote or deny it, if that be the case. Uh, affirm and deny new elder and deacon candidates and church officers. You can see that there's several parts of election in there, uh, uh, various elections that we hold. Um, join the elders in an effort to find a new pastor when the need arises. So uh, one provision, and, and you may have a question on this, I don't know, but um, the, in, in the event, let's say I drop dead of a heart attack and get hit by a bus, all right? And we've got to find a new pastor. The way the bylaws lay out the search process, elders will be overseeing that process, okay? The it's not like we're going to just say, hey, hey, guard the gospel. We're going to go over here and y'all just, we trust y'all to do it. <laughs> the elders are responsible to shepherd in guarding that gospel, right? They'll bring on several members of the church by vote of the church of who will join them in that process. And the elders will shepherd the, the, that committee through the process of finding a new pastor. Um, so I, in, in a perfect world, we get to a situation where the plurality of elders, one elder drops, maybe the main teacher, and pick up the next Sunday like nothing happened, right? Ideally, that would be perfect. But often there's, there needs to be a, a bit more. Um, so they'll join with the elders in that, in that process. Uh, terminate staff. Fill any committees that are created by the elders as the elders see a committee necessary, like finance committee would be necessary, that kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, nominate elder and deacon candidates in partnership with the elders. So here, here's another thing, qualification in the bylaws, is that the elders can bring forward elder candidates, which we've been doing uh, routinely. But that doesn't mean that the church body can't also voice in that, like, hey, I think you should bring forward, uh, we're going to announce we're going to nominate some elders. I'm going to nominate two at the, at the member meeting, uh, assuming that it's a, a passage of the bylaws. But then... Following that, we'll announce elder nominations. That doesn't necessarily mean you nominate an elder that that person's going to be an elder. It, it, the elders can also bring forward a name that you didn't know or you didn't recognize or, or whatever. Um, but So that's in conjunction. Deacons is probably going to be a lot more like it normally is, uh, where you just announce a, a deacon nomination and, and you bring forward names. All right. So here, here's the part where this is... Uh, it's difficult to maintain the balance here that we're going to fight to maintain. I don't mean, I don't mean fight. I mean that we're going to strive to maintain. All right. At the same time, congregational rule is never meant to undermine the leadership of the elders. That's Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Submit to your leaders as ones who have charge over your soul. While disagreements can and do occur between pastor, the pastors of the church and the membership, both parties should seek resolution in private with only those necessary in attendance. So in other words, you're not just going around trying to create issues, but let's look at Hebrews 13.17. I want, I want you to see some of these. Hebrews 13.17 Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, 
as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What about 1 Peter 5, 1-5? So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The relationship between those two is what I want to draw out. Hebrews 13, 17. 1 Peter 5. Hebrews 13, 17 is to you members of the church. Submit to your leaders. He, uh, 1 Peter 5 is to the elders of the church, the overseers of the church. Shepherd the flock of God, not not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, not domineering over people. So there's a relationship between the two. One is submitting to the leaders of the church. The other is not domineering over the other. You see that, you see that tension that we're striving for? That, that kind of balance in the, in the congregation where there is submission on the one end of, to the leadership of the church and on the other end there's not domineering over the congregation. And there is recourse in the Bible and there is recourse in the bylaws. For, hey, the, one of these elders is out of control and abusing the congregation. And you have two witnesses. Oh, where did you hear this before? Two, two witnesses. Then they bring it before the church. And if it's, right, you go through the church discipline process. When there's an elder, it's out of control. Okay? Which can happen. So there's provision for that, but that's not what we're striving for. We're striving for that balance between the two. And so what does Paul say in Romans 12? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all Romans 15, 5-7, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, that is, accept one another, as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. Romans 14, 19, let's, let's get to the last point here. Members, member meetings especially should never be used as an avenue for division or to sow disunity among those who would have been otherwise ignorant. They are for the purpose of building up the church body to maturity. That's even in the excommunication process. That's in the accepting people in the membership process. That's in all the budget passing and all the voting and all the various things that we do. It's for the building up of the body that it come to maturity, right? So what I mean by this is Look, let's, let's dispense with the idea that we should, because congregation rules, that we should just hide everything that we, we really want to get accomplished from the leaders of our church, wait till member meeting, and then just pop up with a resolution, right? That's not the goal of anything we're doing here in the church. Go to the elders and tell them, I think we need to do this. There's no way you get around this without members in the congregation having to trust the people that are leading them. And you go, well, well, what about if they abuse that trust? They're sinners too. And there's likely a point where somebody's going to abuse that trust. The Bible never guarantees we're not going to be abused. Right? Okay? But does give us recourse should the abuse occur to deal with it. Why? So that the body can be built up into maturity. Right? 
So you got something that you really nagging you and you really, you really wanted to see something happen in the church? Go to the elders and tell them, I think we should do this. And then through conversation and through talking, that may come about or there may be another direction that, that's more wise that we could go down. But the point is, don't just say, well, congregation rules, so let's, let's go to member meeting and let's really stir up a fuss. That's not what we're doing, right? That's not what we're trying to do. That's not achieving that balance between congregation and elders. Elders are responsible to lead, and the church is responsible to submit. Elders are also not supposed to domineer, and the church body is not just supposed to take abuse, right? There's balance that's supposed to be there between the two. Questions? Go ahead, James. Yeah, there's a little bit, a little bit of submission that has to be there. A humility that has to go with the TSA line. <laughs> there's a little bit of that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're submitting to one another, like you would the TSA. All right, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Well, yeah, when the, when the church body and the elder, when the elders are preaching and teaching what they should be preaching and teaching, and when the church body is coming alongside that and guarding the gospel and the deacons are serving, and inevitably when that meets a hostile worldview that is lost and dying, the reaction to that kind of gospel witness in the church is going to be felt in the community and people will sometimes have a visceral reaction. So in the event that uh, friction occurs between the church and the world, it's again a call back to the gospel. Is what we're doing gospel truth? And if it is, you should expect the world both to hear the gospel and some be saved, and to hear the gospel and some hate you. So when the church gets restored to its place in the community, the hate will also come with it, right? That's going to happen. And so that's the time to go, first of all, are, do they hate us rightfully so? Like we, we, we did something really terrible and we should repent for that? Or is the reaction because we're actually upholding biblical truth? And in the event that it's because we're upholding biblical truth, you push harder. You don't back down, right? 
but the church has to be a body that is steeled, that its, its skeleton from bow to stern is solid. Because if it's not, then we're going to sink like the Titanic, all right, and probably deserve to. So, you know, my argument has been made over the last six weeks. I think this is what we should do. I think this is a biblical church order. I've tried to make that from Scripture, from history, from the bylaws themselves. Demonstrate where those are. Certainly, you are welcome to email me, text me, ask me questions that you want to, give me a phone call, whatever is the case, before we go into the vote on Sunday. My hope is that the vote will be unanimous. I, I really do hope that. Um, in the event that it's not, that doesn't mean that everybody has to come and rubber stamp anything. Right? I get there may be some no votes out there. My hope is that if you encounter some of those no votes in the people that you're talking to or whatever, you would encourage them to just, before they come on Sunday, just listen to these last six online, point it to them, and just say, go through that. And if you still disagree, okay, fine. But I think you can see that it's in the Bible, that it's in history, that it's there. So, I think if we move in this direction, then I, I think it will be for the flourishing of our church in years, I hope decades and centuries to come. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray to that end that the gospel would flourish here. Uh, I would love nothing more than some pastor in 200 years of Emmanuel Baptist Church to be preaching the gospel and for the church to be being built up in love and unity all for your name's sake and for your glory and for it to be a strong witness in Tuscaloosa. So we pray to that end. We hope that you will do that and preserve that witness here for centuries, millennia, however long it is until Jesus returns, that this church will be here. And would you surround us with a membership who is set on that being the case, who doesn't just want to live for the moment, but who wants to preserve a faithful lineage for years to come. We pray that you would give us that. To that end, we pray for the salvation of our children, that they would be raised up in this church, they would come to understand the gospel, they would be baptized, they would be faithful believers, that they would stay here in the, in the community and they would help continue to minister to the city of Tuscaloosa through this church, and that there would be a legacy of people here for for centuries, that can remember what their dad and their granddad and their great-granddad did. So I pray that this congregation, you would give us the power and the ability to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.